Proverbs chapter 5, verse 1. My son, give attention to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may observe discretion and that your lips may reserve knowledge. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and smoother than oil is her speech. But in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps take hold of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life, her ways are unstable, she does not know it. Now then, my sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house, or you will give your vigor to others and your years to the cruel one. Strangers will be filled with your strength, and your hard-earned goods will go to the house of an alien. And you groan at your final end, and your flesh and your body are consumed. And you say, how I have hated instruction, my heart spurned reproof. I have not listened to the voice of my teachers, nor inclined my ear to my instructors. I was almost in utter ruin in the midst of the assembly and congregation. Now drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. His own iniquities will capture the wicked, and he will be held with the cords of his sin. He will die for lack of instruction, and in the greatness of his folly, he will go astray. Spirit of the living God, we come to you asking your gentle teaching this morning, your compassionate touch, Lord, your redemptive word. And we come seeking to hear from you and learn of your wisdom and learn of the way that you've called us the way of wisdom, a path of righteousness that is pure and good and upright. And I pray that you'll open eyes, Father, of of all ages in here this morning, youngest to oldest, that we might see your ways and walk in them, that we might know your truth and embrace it. And Father, Your Word is such a blessing to us. I thank You for giving us truth and making clear to us the path of life. Bless this time this morning, Father, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I was originally alerted to the statement on Joel Rosenberg's weblog. And it, it was so unbelievable, I had to check it out for myself, and so I went to the link he had there, and, and I actually watched uh, the statement being made. It was made last week by Larry O'Donnell, Lawrence O'Donnell, on his show on MSNBC, and he said the following, and I quote, The book of Revelation is a work of fiction, describing how a truly vicious God would bring about the end of the world. No half-smart religious person actually believes the book of Revelation anymore. They are certain that their God would never turn into a malicious torturer and mass murderer beyond Hitler's wildest dreams. Heads up, brothers and sisters, lines are being drawn. And people are bold-facedly challenging truth. 
going head to head with it, calling it the exact opposite, calling it lies, calling it fiction, calling it bogus, whatever. I agree that no half smart religious people believe in the book of Revelation. It takes whole smarts. It's an intelligent approach to truth and to the Word of God. It does take faith. Not blind faith leaping off a cliff, but faith that God's Word is true and what He says is true and, and that it comes from the heart of a loving God. The book of Revelation. What Mr. O'Donnell does not understand, gang, is that the book of Revelation is not God's, a book of God's malevolent wrath. It is a book of God's gracious and loving warning. Well, those who, like O'Donnell, take his wrath is not wrath. It's warning, it's care, it's concern on God's part. Mr. O'Donnell is confusing the after with the before. What do you mean? I mean, if we all were suddenly thrust into the after, if we were surprised by wrath, if abruptly we found ourselves without warning in the tribulation, God laughing in the background, then words like vicious, malicious, and murderer might apply. But that is not the case here. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Jesus went on to say God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him the first time. The first time Jesus came, He didn't come in judgment. He came in love, compassion, grace, and forgiveness. And we are in that age following His first coming, the age of grace. The age where Jesus came and said, look, I love you, I want to save you. Come to me, and it's a done deal. That's the before. The wrath of God is the after. And it is legitimate, and it is true. There will be a tribulation. There will be a time of God pouring out His wrath on a Christ-rejecting sinful world. It is going to happen. It is clear. But it's not because it's what God wants to happen. It's because He knows this is what will happen. And a loving God, like any loving parent, always begins by issuing warning so that his children don't have to go through the punishment. Those of you who have parented kids, you know that's what you do. If you do this, if you make this choice, this will be the result. Don't make this choice. I love you too much. But if you make the choice, my love is going to be wrath. You will feel the punishment for disobedience. And we understand that in, in the parental sense, but you know, it comes to God and people say, oh, the book of Revelation, it's, it's from a harsh, unloving, uncaring God. No, it's from a, a God who loves you and wants to save you and therefore warns you. Save me from what? Save me from the consequences of my own sinful choices. Saves me from my foolishness. Saves me from my stupid rebellion. And that's exactly what it is. God so loved the world, gang, that the very first prophecy we have written down, the first one on record, that was just written 682 roughly years after creation. This first prophecy was given to us as a warning several thousand years ago so that when the day of wrath comes, all of mankind might have had opportunity. Listen to this. Enoch, this is from Jude 14, Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. First prophecy that we've got. The very first one out of God's mouth was a word of warning. Why would God warn of such judgment so many thousands of years before it happens? Because He loves. 
Same reason why he warned of the flood 1,000 years before it happened. Did you know that? Did you know mankind had a, had a, a millennia of warning prior to the flood hitting earth and prior to the destruction there? People say, oh, God's an uncaring, mean, spirited God to flood the world and kill all those people. They had a 1,000 years. What are you talking about? How do we know that? Well, Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam had a son. Enoch, the same prophet who spoke those words we just read. Enoch named his son Methuselah. Why? Methuselah's name means in his death it shall come. It was a warning of the flood. And that happened a thousand years prior. And then leading up to Noah, 120 years of Noah preaching and warning before the flood came. Why? Because a loving God warns His people just like a loving father, a loving mother warns his or her children. It's for love that we have something like the book of Revelation. It's for love that we have the warning right out front. Love warns, love instructs, love prepares, and God is love. Does that make sense to everybody? Apparently, Mr. O'Donnell doesn't get that. Doesn't understand what we've been talking about. Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet, He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. That's that which is passed on, sin passed on from one generation to the next. As it's continued, that sin will be punished. And the Lord is clear about that. And in a parenting situation, no one would argue that a parent has a right to instruct and guide and direct children. And that's what the Father is doing with us. He loves us so much that He tells us before so that we might be saved prior to the after. He's a father who loves, warns, and so instructs his sons and daughters. Proverbs chapter 5 is a before the after word of instruction. Before the after. Some here this morning are already in the after. The aftermath of choices. Some are at the place of the before. I want you to understand before we go into it in a word of grace here that this is the word of warning before some of the decisions many of us have already made. Some of the messes we've already made. I want to give you this disclaimer where marriage is concerned. Many here this morning are in the before. You're on the front end of things. Uh, Many of our students not married yet. Not even in relationships. Not quite to that place. That's the before place. Or there are newly married people. You can tell they're the ones still holding hands. Before the storms of life arrive. They're the ones sitting real close. The before situation. The storms haven't hit yet. They will. And that's okay. It's part of the deal. But that's the before situation. Many here are in the after, for better or worse. For better, some of you have been, oh, for decades, with the wife or husband of your youth. And it's good. And you know it's good. And you would tell anybody, this is the way it's supposed to be because it gets better and better. And it really does. It's not easier. Don't get me wrong. It doesn't get easier and easier. It gets better and better. As you learn to walk together, to to weather the storms. And those who are in that place, I would say, are in the wellspring of marriage. There are some in the after for worse. You've had a broken marriage or two. 
The well seems to have gone dry. Perhaps you're sitting here this morning and you're in a marriage and you're feeling like you're in the place of utter ruin. It's nearly over. Uh, I shared Wednesday night, Les and I are both aware of several couples right now who are really struggling. And I want you to understand that, that we all get that. And what we're going to talk about this morning is not about bashing those on the head who have not gotten it or who have made the mistakes in the past and now we're trying to figure out how to deal with the mess. Jesus has a message for every one of us this morning, for better or worse. But we have two options in dealing with things like this. Let me tell you, as, as a pastor, one of the most difficult things to do is talk about stuff that I know people have messed up on. To deal with, I can deal with stuff that I've messed up on and be very honest about that, but to talk about things that other people in the fellowship, I know some people are going to go, oh, that's me. Oh, that hurts. Oh, I wish that... And I could avoid that, and many pastors do. Lots of churches just stay on the light and fluffy and, and enjoy being there. And so our two options are this today. We can, like MSNBC's O'Donnell, we can choose to sidestep the truth and just play it easy. Or we can choose, like Solomon, to address the truth, put it out there as it is, knowing, knowing that it comes from a God of love, restoration, forgiveness, and redemption. And that's what I choose to do today. This is not teaching or judgment for after the fact, but it's loving instruction before the well runs dry. And if your well has already begun to run dry, listen, God can refill. He's good at this stuff. Let's check this out. Proverbs chapter 5 and verse 1. Solomon says, My son, give attention to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may observe discretion, and that your lips may reserve knowledge. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and smoother than oil is her speech. But in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of, of life, and her ways are unstable. She doesn't even know it. We met her for the first time back in Proverbs chapter 2. This, this woman, this adulteress. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 11. Discretion will guard you. Understanding will watch over you. And then down in verse 16. To deliver you from the strange woman. The strange woman. I'm not talking about some of the weird women we have here at the bridge. I'm talking about <laughs> strange woman. And if you're sitting there saying, that offends me, well, then you must think you're one of the weird ones. I didn't say you were. It says this woman leaves the companion of her youth. She flatters with words. She forgets the covenant of her God. Her whole house sinks down to death. This is the strange woman. This is the other woman in the book of Proverbs. There are two. Now, Proverbs is a very black and white book. I appreciate that about the truth. I appreciate that about absolute truth. It's true. It is what it is. The lines are clearly drawn so that we can clearly understand. The book of Proverbs talks about the way of wisdom, and it talks about the way of foolishness. And they do not parallel. They go opposite directions. The book of Proverbs points out the darkness and points out the light. And the book of Proverbs deals with the woman of wisdom, or the woman called wisdom, and the adulteress. And they are the opposites in this book. Which is interesting to me. She's the opposite to the personification of wisdom as a woman. She is adultery. The word adulteress in verse 3 and verse 20 of chapter 5 is zur. 
in the Hebrew, and it normally just means strange, but in this case, the noun is in the feminine form, which is why it's strange woman. And the word is used to describe this woman whose lips drip honey and whose speech is smooth as oil. Her lips drip honey. It makes me think of the 80s and, and you know the lip gloss that used to be... <laughs> get that. Verse 4 says she is bitter as wormwood. And it goes on to say, sharp as a two-edged sword. Now that, that may catch your attention. Wait a minute, two-edged sword. I've heard that phrase. That's the Bible, right? Isn't the Bible the double-edged, the sharp, is the two-edged sword? Well, this is a different phrase. You need to understand this. It's interesting that the Hebrew word here that's translated two-edged or double-edged is in the plural form itself. It's many-edged. Double-edged, the plurality of that. Double-double-double is what he's saying. What does that mean? It means that this double-edged, double-double-double-edged sword causes multiple lacerations. Causes much... You know, it... It's the kind of thing that as it goes in and comes out, it doesn't go in clean and come out clean. The Word of God does that. The Word of God is precise and surgical in the way that the Lord cuts right to the heart of things. But this sword has many edges, and as it goes in and comes out, it creates carnage. And that's what we're talking about here. Kyle and Delich in their commentary say the end in which the disguised seduction terminates is bitter as the bitterest and cutting as that which cuts the most. Self-condemnation. A feeling of divine anger. Anguish of heart and destructive judgment. These are the things that come when we choose to go the path of the adulterous woman. Ultimately, her feet go down to death. Now, please understand, the adulterous woman in the book of Proverbs is not just talking about a woman who lures a husband from his marriage. It's talking about the whole idea of being drawn away. And I'll get to that a little bit more in a moment here. But this is the aftergang of sexual immorality. In the end, she's bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword, feet go down to death, steps take hold of Sheol. She's not ponder the path of life, her ways are unstable. This is the afterword of sexual immorality. I need to say something, and I especially want our younger people to listen closely to this. Because those of us who have been around for a while have have learned a few things here. And the first thing I want you to understand is that marriage doesn't begin when you say, I do. Marriage doesn't even begin when you meet that spouse to whom you're going to be married. Marriage begins long beforehand, even in your youth. It's affected by feeding lust with pornography or other virtual realities that only mar the coming reality of marriage. And they start to twist the way that you view things before you ever meet guys, that woman, or girls, that man that you would marry. Things like premarital sex mess up marriage. It does. Uh, Paul said to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.22, Flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call upon the name of the Lord from a pure heart. Shacking up, living together. Outside of marriage, that is outside of the marriage contracts, outside of marriage before the Lord. Gang, these things all fall into this category of unsanctified sexual immorality. And I, I was thinking about this this week and wondering, do you, ever, do you suppose marriage itself will ever actually be forbidden? There are those who'd like to just take it off the books. Or those who would like to say any pairing of any two people, male, female, doesn't matter, is marriage. Those who would mess with it and so undermine it. 
And the Bible tells us that there is a day coming where there will be those who will try to forbid marriage of any kind. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. You know what? Living with someone outside of marriage is the same thing as forbidding marriage. We don't need marriage. We don't need the contract. We don't need the covenant. Just get rid of it. That's forbidding marriage. And the Spirit was right on. And we're seeing it even today. Marriage is God-created. And I've said this before, but let me underscore this. It is to be gratefully shared by a husband and a wife, a man and a woman, who believe and know the truth. And some might say, some of the kids might say, well, you know, I hear Paul say to Timothy, flee youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Boring. There's nothing boring about righteousness. Wish I had known that as a young kid. There's nothing more exciting. In fact, if you want a life of challenge and thrills beyond belief, pursue righteousness. Because it's in that place that you are cutting against the grain. You're different than the world. Then God will bless you in immeasurable ways. Set your feet now on solid ground for an awesomely blessed marriage later. And again, I'm talking to our young people who have not experienced marriage yet. You're making marital choices right now, long before you even meet your future husband or wife. John Corson said, and I love this quote, the best reason for making right choices today is tomorrow. Well said. Best reason for making right choices today is tomorrow. Solomon goes on in verse 7 and says, Now then, my sons, listen. Listen to me. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house. Solomon pits these two women against each other, and he does it throughout the book. Wisdom is a woman, which we'll talk about in a couple of weeks. Wisdom is a woman, and the adulteress, who is now the opposite of wisdom as a woman, and you got to ask, why, why is that? Why does he do it that way? I mean, I understand why he's talking about women here. He's talking to his sons. It's a good way to keep their attention. But why is the opposite of wisdom not foolishness? Wisdom as a woman, foolishness as a woman. No, it's wisdom as a woman and the adulteress. Why does he pit these two against each other? Because, listen, wisdom will always lead you to the Lord, whereas the adulteress will always lure you away from the Lord will always lure you off the path. In fact, the word adulterous, strange woman, also means to turn aside. And anything that causes you to turn aside off of the way of wisdom is adultery. It adulterates the life that God has called us to. It draws us away, lures us to something else, something other, and anything other than remaining focused on God and walking toward Him, anything other, is just foolishness. It's adultery. The warning continues in verse 9. You will give up your vigor to others. Your strength, that is. And your years to the cruel one. I have my assumptions as to who the cruel one is. Not a man. It's Satan. Your stranger, and strangers will be filled with your strength, and your hard-earned goods will go to the house of an alien. Now, don't get lost in the language here. This, This happens. 
Solomon is saying exactly what happens. You ever wonder how many dollars, speaking of your hard-earned goods, how many dollars are spent annually on divorce in America? The average cost of uncontested, uncontested divorces, that's amicable, is over $10,000 a person. And Americans spend billions of dollars annually on divorce proceedings alone. And that's simply divorce is an outcome of adultery. What, what about other outcomes like sexually transmitted diseases? How much money is spent on the medical costs alone of STDs in our country? Some estimated over $15 billion a year. Another statistic, one, you're going to love this. One in three Americans under the age of 40 has an active STD. One out of three. The other two-thirds are right here this morning. <laughs> and it makes you want to you know, use a hand sanitizer before you... <laughs> How are you doing there? Yeah. What's the annual cost of AIDS in America? Our federal government spends $20.4 billion annually for HIV and AIDS treatment. That's not research. That's just treatment. $20.4 billion. And President Bush's plan, PEPFAR, which is helping send money to Africa for AIDS relief there, $15 billion annually, an estimated $48 billion from 2009 to 2013. Add all that up. We could pay off the national debt if we would be a little more sexually moral in this country and probably have change. Now, we would definitely have change. What if we had just listened to the before, before the after? Uh, What if we had just paid attention to the truth? And all of this carnage, all of this loss would not have happened. The Spirit says your hard-earned goods will go to the house of the alien. That's financial loss. But gang, that doesn't even touch the mental, emotional strength drained out of a man, drained out of a woman in the aftermath of sexual sin. It's, It's unbelievable. The tragedy is that in sex education in our high schools and our junior highs today, that's never discussed. Emotional anguish, turmoil, pain, heartache, anger, bitterness, dissatisfaction, frustration. The emotional side of things, that's not touched. It's just, use a condom and you'll be okay. No, you won't. Unsanctified sexual immorality. Unsanctified? Yeah, Hebrews chapter 13 verse 4 says marriage is to be held in honor among all and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Sanctified sexuality is that which occurs in the marriage bed, one man, one woman for one life. That's God's plan. That's God's deal. Verse 11 going on says, you, and you groan at your final end when your flesh and your body are consumed. Is that not a picture of death by AIDS or STDs? Verse 12, you say, How I have hated instruction and my heart spurned reproof. I have not listened to the voice of my teachers nor inclined my ear to my instructors. I was almost in utter ruin in the midst of the assembly and in the congregation. And you know what's happened here, gang? People either avoid church altogether or they sit in church feeling in utter ruin for not having heard what God said. And that's not what God wants. 
It is not the Lord's desire for you to come into your father's house and be ashamed. And sit there wondering, does everybody know it? Do they see it in me? These people, these people are all righteous. I'm the one who's a mess here. God doesn't want that. He didn't call us to corporate worship so that we could sit down and be surrounded by saints while we feel our sin and the walls of guilt and remorse closing in on us. That's not why He calls us together. In fact, it it blows out the whole idea of Jesus saying, Come to Me, you who are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Come to me, Jesus says. And a matter of fact, here at the bridge, we as brothers and sisters would say, come to this place because every one of us have been there. You know how many lives of utter ruin have been restored and forgiven and sanctified right here? Jesus doing? And if we don't understand that and we can't look at each other and say, oh, you're hurting now, listen, there's a better place. Let me pray for you. Let Let me weep with you. See, that's what we're called to do, to love each other, to show the grace of God. But more than anything else, this fear of utter ruin keeps people away from the church, away from Jesus, and away from those who would pray for and love and encourage. How much better, like Jesus, instead of, instead of saying, I was almost in utter ruin in the midst of the assembly and congregation, how much better to say like Jesus in Psalm twenty-two, twenty-two, I will tell of your name to my brethren, and in the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. That's what God wants. For you to sit in the midst of the assembly and look around and go, yeah, I was, I was lost, but now I'm found. I was sexually sinful, but now I have been redeemed. I'm pure in the Father's eyes again. And He offers that. And He wants that for all of us. But what is not preached or taught or explained in the pulpits of America today, tragically, is the devastating tsunami of sexual sin. And that's the best description I can come up with for it. It wipes a person out. No, it doesn't wipe me out. I'm good to go. No, you're not. I guarantee you, financially, emotionally, spiritually, even when we think that we've got it together and we can overcome and we can fight back against all of this pain that the book of Proverbs says is going to come, it's going to come. And the warning is out there because God loves you. And doesn't want you to have to deal with the outfall, the outcome. If you're there, Jesus can, Jesus will redeem you. If you are in the place of the aftermath and you're just suffering for it, Jesus wants to offer you forgiveness and cleansing and wholeness today if you come to Him. I love this this verse, this section, Ephesians chapter 2. It speaks absolute truth. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, every one of us. In fact, let me give you a statistic. Four out of four people in America today sin. He says we all formerly lived there indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And that's the offer of God. That's what He puts out here. Along with the warning, that's the choice you have before you. Utter devastation and destruction and despair. Lostness for all eternity or... Love, grace, forgiveness, joy. Your choice. 
Now, we come to the most exciting biblical invitation to healthy sexual intimacy and exhilaration in marriage in all Scripture. I love this next section. It's wonderful. In fact, when I sent out the email yesterday, I got some interesting responses. Just an email saying, parents, be alerted, be aware. We're going to talk a little bit about sexual things on in church this, this morning. And uh, Jim Crouch sent me an email back saying, this is why I love the Bridge Christian Fellowship. We talk about sex. <laughs> Verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. What is he talking about? What are these springs running through the streets? I submit to you that it's offspring. It's children. Statistics again, 40%. 40% of children born in America today are born out of wedlock. 40%. That means without a father in the house. And, continuing on, 63% of teen suicides take place in homes without fathers. 90% of teen runaways happen in a fatherless home. 71% of all high school dropouts came from a home without a dad. And 85%, you're going to love this, of all men in jail today grew up without a father. What does that tell you? While the world is saying, no, hey, it doesn't matter. A woman can be single and and have a child and, and it'll just be great. Well, the statistics don't say so. Now, single moms, please hear me. You have the support and love of this fellowship. And you have our care and our compassion. And I don't know how you do it. One night alone with the kids and I'm freaking out. (laughs) I could not be a single parent. So if anything ever happens to Cheryl, I'm looking for a wife. Quick. (laughs) Streams of water running in the streets. This is not God's design. Here's God's design. Verse 18. Let your fountain be blessed. And rejoice in the wife of your youth. What a great verse. Let your fountain be blessed. Your springs, your children, your offspring, all that's going on in your family. The sanctified, listen, the sanctified marriage bed blesses the children of that household. Where the bed is pure, the children are blessed for it. Defiling the marriage bed will mess up and will defile your kids. Guys, listen. Gentlemen, you're not in a box. You know, or you go out and, oh, she's cute, but my family's over there. I'll just take care of We'll do this here and that. It's not going to affect. It will affect home. It will impact children. Do you realize affairs impact children even before they're born? Well, where do you get that? Solomon. Solomon was the second son of David and Bathsheba. The first son died. And then Solomon comes along, and pretty much from Solomon's birth on, David's pretty good. He, you know, we don't see a lot of major sin problems, a lot of loving God, writing hymns and psalms, and, and leading Israel. And there's, there's goodness that goes on from Solomon's birth forward. And yet, Solomon had over a thousand women between wives and concubines. And where did he learn that? Dad. Gets passed on. It gets passed on. Jesus was talking with a woman whose well had run dry. Jesus who says, I want to bless you. I want your marriage to be a beautiful fountain, a wellspring. He meets with this woman 
Sarah pointed this out to me Wednesday night. This woman had five failed marriages, and she was currently shacking up with the sixth guy, because, hey, why get married anyway? It fails every time. And Jesus said this to her in John chapter 4, verse 13, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. The water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. (coughs) Listen to the words of Jesus and your marriage can be a wellspring of eternal life. Regardless of anything that's happened in the past. And that's the key right there. Jesus Christ present in marriage. Husband, wife, Jesus. Jesus between, Jesus with his arms around, Jesus leading a husband and wife together. Let me give you quickly now three words which will either invigorate your marriage or will restore or at least will give you sound focus, those of you who are not married yet, about the wellspring of marriage. The first word is supplication. Supplication. If you want to increase intimacy in your marriage... And I'm talking to the marriage that's the healthiest right now in the room, mine, or the marriage that's ha- <laughs> or, or the marriage that's having the greatest struggle right now. And, and you, there may be husband and wife sitting here right now. I don't know, I don't know, but maybe sitting here right now, just going, there's just tension between us. You know, this this is going on, and we're not getting along, and we've got a we've got a troubled marriage. Well, you've got exactly what the curse said you would have. <laughs> God said to Eve. Your desire is going to be for your husband and he's going to rule over you. You know, that was a curse. That wasn't the original intent. It wasn't that the husband would be the boss. And the whole implication is, Eve, because of what's happened here and the choice you've made and because you led your husband to sin like you have, guess what? You've just messed things up. Marriage is from here on out going to be a struggle for who is boss. And that may be going on right now. Let me tell you what to do. The number one way to increase intimacy in your marriage wherever you're at, pray together. Well, that sounds like a pastor's thing to say. I'm not kidding. Pray together. Pray about each other. Pray for your marriage. If your marriage is in trouble, I promise you, before picking up some marital advice book or picking up the phone to call a counselor, start praying together and things will start to change. Because there's nothing more intimate than prayer. And a man and a woman praying together honestly and openly before each other will begin to experience in that marriage healing. And for those of you who aren't married yet, you make it a point to pray with your future husband, girls. With your future spouse, guys. Your future wife. You pray together and it increases intimacy. And it strengthens the marriage. James said in James 5.16, Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Well, I'm not righteous. If you're in Jesus, you are. Isn't that great? The moment you give your life to Christ, He sees you as righteous and your prayers have just been put on the level of the righteous man. Effective. Supplication. The second word here is exhilaration. Exhilaration. Look at verse 19. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. And I love that that's in the Bible. Because God is not afraid of talking about what He wants for a healthy marriage. Sex should be good. 
in a healthy marriage. It should be part of the deal. The instruction of God before, as opposed to after, the instruction of God before, if we will listen, is be exhilarated, yes, sexually, be exhilarated in your marriage. (coughs) Christian couples... Understand, a godly marriage should be, is supposed to be, was designed to be, by God, the most sexually satisfied condition in the entire world. That's where it's supposed to be at its absolute best. And the world has worked awfully hard to tell us otherwise. Satan has done such a number on the psyche of Americans especially and people in this world to say it's better if you can go get it over here or it's better if you experience it over there or this way or this or that way. And God says the absolute best, most exhilarating, blessed place for sex to happen is husband and wife in your marriage. That's the place. That's where it's good. Men and women alike. Let me encourage you with the words of Paul. In fact, keep your finger there and turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul, who encouraged godly couples, Christian men and women, to never allow sex to be anything, listen, anything other than something freely given one to another, and not just for satisfaction, but for holiness sake. Paul's words. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man to not to touch a woman. But, because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. Because of immoralities, yeah. Paul says we have a sin nature. And we have eyes. And we have a tendency toward the immoral. And God, knowing this beforehand, said, but I'm given a marriage. So that the eyes and the nose and the ears and the mouth and the, and the fingers can touch, can enjoy the sensation that I created them to enjoy without the threat of all the immorality that would go with it otherwise. The husband, verse 3, must fulfill his duty to his wife. <laughs> can I hear it? Yeah! <laughs> and likewise, the wife to her husband. Yeah! <laughs> Guys, check this out. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. (laughs) And likewise, the husband does not have his authority over his own body, but the wife does. Yeah. (laughs) And Paul says, and listen to this, he says, stop depriving one another. One of the most dangerous and detrimental things that can happen in a marriage is when one spouse or the other starts depriving the other of sex to prove a point or to have control or authority. Well, you did that. I'm not going to do that. You know, I mean... (laughs) Stop depriving one another. Except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And I love this. Paul says there's one reason for a married couple to take a break from having sex. One reason. Prayer. And it's not going off, you pray in your corner, you pray in your corner, and when the bell rings, come back. And that's not it. It's pause for a moment in your sexual relationship that you might pray together. Because once again, back to supplication, the the husband and wife who pray together stay together. The man and the woman who pray together experience a deeper intimacy. 
Married couples, if you're having sexual issues in your marriage, pray together. And you will increase intimacy. Pray one for another. Pray together. Hold hands. Let each other hear the other's voice as you talk to God about what you're struggling with. And it will heal. And it will get better. Paul says, so come back together then so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not command. Which was wise of Paul because there might be some women who are like, I don't think Paul knows what he's talking about because he's not married. It's not fair of him to say this. I say this by way of concession. Look, understand that the marriage bed is a good place. It's a place of exhilaration. Paul gets it. He understands that the Lord created in us healthy sexual desire and the way to keep it from becoming unhealthy or sinful is to be exhilarated in it. In other words, do it and do it often. I cannot believe I heard that in church. Yeah! Yeah, I'm not kidding about this. And, and the, the tragedy is that the world has so tainted sexual things that when we gather as a church fellowship, we kind of feel a little ashamed or embarrassed to bring the subject out, to talk about it. Listen, J. Vernon McGee, I love, he said, there was a time when speaking of these things was taboo. They were not mentioned as though they were immoral or some sort of dirty thing, even among married folk. Well, that's the work of the enemy. That is not the promise of God who says, be exhilarated in your marriages. You're not married? Guess what? It's it's exhilarating. That's what it's for. That's part of the deal. And speaking of this passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, J. Bernard McGee says, do you notice how God describes physical love in marriage? God lifts it to the very highest plane. That's a good thing. For the child of God, the Christian home is the picture of the intimate, exhilarating relationship between Christ and the church. And so we have supplication, we have exhilaration. Donna was a little discouraged after the, she heard this message first hour and, and came up to me and I had three points. And, and she said, the message was good, but she said, I, I was disappointed with one thing. You had the S, you had the E, you didn't have the X. <laughs> so I went home. And I got out my dictionary. And so the third word in first hour was ordination. Uh, you know, it's godly ordained marriage. Uh, I'm just going to change, change that here to Xerox. Okay? <laughs> Xylophone doesn't work. Xenophobe, that doesn't work at all. Xerox. Okay? Because, because the marriage between a man and a woman is a copy of Christ in the church. It's as close as I could get, okay? Let me read this to you. Ephesians, thank you, thank you. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Now Paul says, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Ladies, listen. The way you subject yourself to Jesus Christ, that's the way the Lord wants you to subject yourself to your husband. That's huge. Not worshiping Him, but subjected to Him. You love Jesus. You want to serve Him. You want to do for Him. You want to put Him before yourself. Ladies, that's what He's talking about. Love your husbands like that. For the husband is head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church, He Himself being the Savior of the body. And head doesn't mean boss of. That's the worldly view. No, it just means the role that God has created. I want men to be doing this. I want women to be doing this. I want them to do this together. 
As the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. So as much as we love Jesus, as we want to serve the Lord, as we want to care about what matters to Him, so God says, wives, that's how you should be toward your husbands. But husbands, you're not off the hook. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, which is absolutely putting her before all others. She is numero uno. She is number one. You care more for her than you do yourself. So that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, that He might present to Himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she would be holy and blameless. You see, the way Christ loves the church is He wants her to be pure. And Paul says, husbands, you need to treat your wife in such a way that she can be pure. And you need to cover her and guard her in such a way that no one will say filthy things about her. And that's a husband's responsibility. Husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nurtures it, nourishes it, cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church because we're members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. The two will become one flesh. The mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and to the church. And it doesn't get any holier than that. Why do we have this this thing called marriage? Because God is saying, I want you to understand. I want you in a relationship where you can get a grasp or at least a glimpse of how much I love you of how much Christ loves the church. Back in Proverbs chapter 5, be exhilarated always with her love. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord and he watches all his paths. His eyes are on you, guys. His eyes are on you, ladies, in a good way. In fact, I love that it's not just He watches your feet. He watches your paths, which means He knows down the road what's coming. He knows the lures that are down there. He knows the challenges that you have not even seen. You have no idea that you're going to face. God knows they're there. He's watching the path. And so before we get to that place on the path, God says, hey, warning, don't follow the way of the adulteress. You stay undefiled, sanctified in your marriages, man with woman, woman with man. He knows where I'm going. He sees the road ahead. He knows the adulteress who lies in wait. He knows where she is. And again, not just sexually speaking, the adulteress guys may very well be internet pornography. Same thing. Same thing. Jesus says, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery already. Anything that lures us from the path, from the way of wisdom, is adultery. Anything. It could be success in your job, gentlemen. I'm talking to the guys because I are one and it's easier to you know, relate to guys. It could be the successful ministry that you're trying to accomplish. But if it's luring you from loving your wife as Christ loved the church, it may be the adulteress. God warns before that we might be saved from the after. He gives us the book of Revelation before so that we don't have to go through what is described in there in the after. Listen, if you're caught in the aftermath of unsanctified sexual sin, if you are feeling the utter ruin of a broken marriage in your past or torn relationships or ravaged intimacy, 
You know what you do with that this morning? You don't sit there and let the walls cave in. You turn it over to Jesus. You are surrounded by a people who believe that Jesus redeems and restores and forgives and causes a new life. And my encouragement to each one of us is that we walk today, we choose today from this day forward to walk in wisdom as opposed to adulterated living. If your marriage is struggling, don't ignore the warning signs. Start praying together now. This morning, we're going to sing a song here in just a moment. And while we sing the song, I invite you to go to the back. Husbands and wives, if you need prayer, there is no shame. What, what's, I'll tell you where the shame is. The shame isn't walking out the door and not, not getting any help. The shame is in hiding. But if you have any issues whatsoever that you want to bring before the Lord and you're just, I don't know if I can't, would you, while we sing the song, just go to the back of the room. And one of the shepherds will be there to pray with you. If you want to start your your walk on the way of wisdom today with Jesus and give your life to Him, then while we sing this song, step to the back and someone will be there to pray with you and help you wander into and be led into new life in Christ. Let's be a fellowship who, as the psalmist wrote, as Jesus said, will tell of God's name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. We will praise Him. And church body, for the rest of us, we need to be on our knees for marriage. Amen? Let's pray right now. Holy Father, You have given us a beautiful, marvelous, exhilarating blessing in marriage. You've created us to enjoy all all the pleasures, not just physically, Father, but emotionally and spiritually that a man and a woman can share together. You've made us for this. You've, You've shown us how to do it. You've encouraged us in our marriages. And I just pray, Father, that You will give us ears to hear and that we will trust You for these things. That we will recognize what You're saying to us now. Uh, Father, for those who are, who are early on in this, that they will be protected from the pitfalls that can so destroy marriage later. And for those who are in the midst of it, in the throes of, of difficulty, Father, would You bring a new intimacy and restoration. Father, forgiveness and healing between husband and wife. And may we, Father, look to You. I pray, Holy Spirit, that You would make a difference in marriages here in the bridge. A a difference here. So we're not so many statistics anymore. We're different than the world. I pray that for the body of Christ throughout this region. Make us different, Lord. Not embracing the way of the adulteress, but embracing Your wisdom and truth. I pray for Your church worldwide, Father, for the healing of marriages, the strengthening of truth in and among us, that we might walk and pursue righteousness until the final day. Lord, bring Your healing this morning, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.